I got a sneaking suspicion we just excused everyone between the ages of four and eight. But if you were still here, you're excused to Kids Club. They have done an absolutely fantastic job. If you don't mind grabbing Dulcie afterwards and thanking her, I can't imagine all that she and Katie and Kelly and all those folks have put into helping our kids sing the last month and worship our God and, and all the lessons that have gone into them learning uh, about the real nature of Christmas. So you, if you don't mind thanking them after the service, that would be great. They've done a, a great job. So the dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. So I ask you this question, what are you hoping for? What are you expecting? What are you desiring to happen? Especially as we step into this Christmas season, what are you hoping for? Now, is it a present that you'd really like? I suspect we just excuse that crowd who puts their hope in presents, but it could still be you. Is your hope that your family would be gathered together or at least they'd all get along when they do. Is it your hope that everyone would travel safe? What is it that you're hoping for this season? Because as we step into the Christmas season and we move closer and closer to the birth of Christ, it's easy to see that there's something about this season that brings out our hope. It increases our hope. It makes hope contagious. And even as it brought up bell ringing last week, Pierce and I had the chance to ring a bell, and just the opportunity to stand out and wish lots of strangers a Merry Christmas elicited all kinds of joy out of faces you didn't expect. We would see some people who'd walk into Walmart on a cold day looking very angry or frustrated, and you'd say, Merry Christmas, and, and I'll admit mostly it was Pierce wishing people Merry Christmas, but all of a sudden this smile appeared on their face, this joy showed up. There's something special about this season that brings about hope it's a big part of the season and it was a huge part of christmas that first christmas when christ was born we're in a four-week advent series that we've entitled prepare him room taking a lyric from the song joy to the world celebrating the arrival of the king that's exactly what the word advent means very literally the arrival of the king And so we've defined it this way. Advent is the waiting, expecting, observing, praying, hoping, and preparing for the arrival of the Christ. First as the child and Savior, and then as the returning King. See, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we celebrate that Jesus Christ was born, but that's not the whole story, is it? Just that He came into the world is incredible, The life he led, the death he died, that he was raised on the third day. Now that's an absolutely phenomenal reality that we put our hope in. That someday he will return back as king. In Advent we celebrate both. His first coming and his awaited second. So as we've walked through this Advent series, we've been using the Gospel of Luke as our guide. Looking to Luke to provide us these characters and the gospel stories. And we've used these stories as a launching point into our Advent theme of preparing him room. What does it look like for us as a body of believers in Jesus Christ to approach this season not with the busyness of our culture, 
but to approach the season with a sincere desire to prepare him room, to make room for Christ, so that all glory might be to Christ this season, all glory to him. So as we've walked into these weeks, we've been preparing for the birth of our Savior. And two weeks ago, we considered this first character Luke puts before us, John the Baptist, who came before Christ to point to Christ, and that was his entire ministry. His entire purpose was to stop people and say, look, it's Jesus. Look, it's the Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. And that becomes the same call for us if we are to prepare him room. That we would acknowledge that he is more important. And in doing so, we would acknowledge that we must become less important. That my life needs to be more about exalting him and less about exalting me. And so, I called us two weeks ago to do three things in response to that. I remind you of these things because it's not too late, right? It's not too late. The first thing we put before you was to prioritize Jesus in your life by intentionally reading his word. And it's not too late for us even now to begin to say with a week left, I want to be intentional with God's word leading into Christmas. You haven't missed the boat on this one. There's still a chance for you to take the time to read and to prepare your heart for the birth of Christ. And secondly, we wanted to prioritize Jesus in our families, whatever that might look like, by leading them and pointing them to Jesus. And again, it is not too late. So whether that's reading a devotion like the Jesus Storybook Bible that coincides with an Advent season to your kids, or sharing the Advent devotional that there are still many of floating around in the sanctuary with a spouse or a friend, we want to prioritize Jesus. And finally, we want to prioritize Jesus in our relationships by intentionally reaching out to those we know, to engage them in spiritual conversation, and even invite them to church. And guess what? It's not too late. Recent studies have suggested that during this season, the Christmas season, and and here's a more specific study, 55% of people said, these are unchurched people, said that they would attend church if invited by a family member. You've got a family member, they don't attend church, this is not a bad season to invite them in and say, you know, I know we've asked you before, but would you consider coming with me? In this season, more likely people are willing to step into that. 51% said that they would attend church if invited by a friend or neighbor. So we want to be intentional about prioritizing Jesus by exalting him, by pointing to him, that's how we prepare room for him. And then last week, we looked at Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, a man who was living his life, a man who had a job, a man who had plans to get married, and then welcomed the interruptions of a pregnant fiance and an early marriage that would challenge all family traditions and a baby that would be born in the craziest of circumstances. As we looked at the life of Joseph, we're reminded that any and all of our expectations will probably not be met. And so we must adjust those expectations. We need to be a people who welcome the interruptions, knowing that things in this season in particular never go according to plan, but trusting Christ in the middle of it, 
that He will be at work through it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we were challenged last week in the words of Colossians 4 to prayerfully watch and to give thanks. That we might be open to sharing about the mystery of Christ to those we would come across. That we'd be open about sharing about the mystery of Christ to anyone who would watch our lives. That they might even see a peace that transcends all understanding as things go wrong and challenge us this season. That we might walk in wisdom and grace to those we come around. So this morning we're taking that third step in. We're going to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're going to start in Luke 1, 26-38, and then move forward in Luke a little bit. So Luke 1, 26 says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Last week, I put before you, as we introduced Joseph, this idea, this cultural reality that likely Mary would have been somewhere between 13 to 14 years old, Joseph somewhere between 16 to 18, and that's just a reality you've got to keep in mind as we work through this text. This is a young woman. Now, this isn't a young American woman. This is a young woman who's probably had some life responsibilities pressed into her early, but she's still 13. She's still young. And the next verse, in verse 27, states that she is a virgin. Now, while some might argue what this word means, it gets a little bit more clear and it gets resolved in verse 34. We'll step into that. But take for a moment the chance to consider this. That God the Father sent the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, one of only two angels whose names were given in the Bible. And if you'll step into extra-biblical texts, if you allow me to quote the book of Enoch to you, he's one of two that are considered archangels. That he is one of the highest angels of the heavenly realm, Gabriel and Michael, according to the book of Enoch. So you have this messenger from God who's sent down to Mary. It's this Gabriel who appeared to Daniel to explain to him how to interpret dreams, to give him wisdom and understanding. It's this Gabriel who appears in the temple to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist, leaving him voiceless. And now it's Gabriel, this archangel, who stands before a 13- to 14-year-old girl. And that's a crazy sight. And this is what he says to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Not surprising, right? An angel appears to you. You don't really know what the context is. You don't know if she's in bed. You don't know if she's asleep. You don't know if she's doing chores. You don't know what's going on in her day. Just that an angel shows up, greets her, and tells her, you have found favored with God. And he really likes you. Now, later on, as we step into this text, we'll find Mary to be an absolutely faithful woman. And we'll point that out when, you get, when we get there. But this had to be a shocking moment. It had to cause all kinds of challenge and struggle in her, something the angel would 
catch on to in verse 30, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And for a second time, this angel Gabriel, this archangel of heaven, says to her, You have the favor of God. God really likes you. He's pleased with you. And then she receives a call in her life. A call that really none of us would ever want. A call I'm not sure she was looking for, but having led an obedient life, she's aware and willing to be obey God. And this is what he says on behalf of God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God sends an angel to say, you will become pregnant. And in our culture, a 13 or a 14 year old girl being pregnant would be a travesty, correct? And yet when you dig into it in many third world countries, it's still not that uncommon of a feat. I read yesterday, Google, that spent a lot of time digging into it, that the youngest birth according to history is six. There are plenty of seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, and ten-year-olds who've given birth. Thirteen is not that crazy. But it's still extraordinary. And it's still an extraordinary calling for this angel to show up to her and say, though you're a virgin, you will give birth. And it will be a son. This is before sonograms. This is before anyone would have known. And his name will be Jesus. And then in verse 32 through 33, Gabriel continues on and gives Mary five things about her son. Five prophetic things to speak to her. Five things that I'm sure as she walked on through Jesus' life as an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old and a 25-year-old and a 30-year-old, she clung to in her heart because what Gabriel says to her about her son is that he will be great and that he will be called the son of the Most High, leaning into some Old Testament phrasing that suggests God's presence with him and that he would be God and he will reign on the throne of his father David if you've looked at the genealogies you find them differently in Matthew and you find them differently in Luke and that's because as you step into those genealogies one of them gives you Mary's genealogy the other one gives you Joseph's genealogy that's why Joseph's adoption in this story becomes so incredibly important because Joseph being a son of David carries the Davidic line in him and passes that on to Jesus That's why he inherits the throne of his father, David, legally in that culture. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will never end. Gabriel paints this extraordinary picture for her. And I'm not sure in this moment what's harder for her to swallow the pregnant part, or the, your son will be awesome. And it clearly takes her a while to walk through this. We'll get to that here in a moment. But as the Mary 
says back to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? This goes back to that reality that this word virgin that some people want to deny the virgin birth and make it to be something else. She comes back very clearly and says, I don't get it. I can't have a baby. I've not been with a man. And the angel explains it to her very directly. He answers her question, gives, explains the context of her question, which gives us the answer. The angel says to her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That this baby that would be born will be set apart. He will be holy. And church, lean into this for a minute. For as much as Jesus is exactly like us, in that He was fully human, we need to know that. He was exactly like us, being fully human, but he was also extraordinarily different from us in that he was fully God, and his birth testifies to that. It confirms his divine nature that he is set apart. For if we were to take a straw poll here, there is no one here born of virgin birth, and no one knows anyone born of virgin birth. He's the guy. It set him apart. It was significant. And then the angel Gabriel gives her a sign as a confirmation telling Mary that all of this will be true as if the fact that she was probably going to get morning sickness soon wouldn't be enough. As if the fact that her stomach would start to grow wouldn't be enough. God comforts her with a sign that as she walks through this, God the Father wants her to have comfort in the fact that what He says is true and what He puts before her is real. And as she steps through this, He's trustworthy. And she buys all of it. In verse 36, Behold your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now don't skip over that. Don't glaze over that. This is a woman who's been unable to have kids. Who's been labeled in their culture as unable to be, have kids. And that was something that would put you very much on the outskirts of culture. She can't have kids. She's barren. And yet God shows up to Elizabeth to meet her need to provide for her as a sign for Mary in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And friends, that is the very nature of Christian hope for us, isn't it? That nothing is impossible with God that this sin that I've been struggling with for who knows how long that I've always felt was going to be with me forever nothing is impossible with God that this broken relationship in my life that has hurt me that has wounded me that I have no idea how I'll ever move beyond 
nothing is impossible with God. That this dark loneliness that comes into the season for some people that seems so oppressive and doesn't seem to go away, nothing is impossible with God. And he testifies to that. That if Elizabeth, who's described as advanced in years, and that's got to be a PC term. If Elizabeth could be pregnant, the angel says, then anything can happen. Then anything can happen. And this is the sign to a young girl to assure her that she will soon become supernaturally pregnant and give birth to the second person of the Trinity. As if that wouldn't be sign enough also. So this morning, as we gather together to worship Jesus, if you find yourself not sure of the power of God, if you find yourself not sure that He could forgive you, or that He could heal you, or that He could redeem you, or redeem one of your children, or that He could bring you to salvation, or bring to salvation anyone you've been praying about, or that He could save your marriage, or heal your relationships, Whatever it might be that you might be lacking hope in this morning, Gabriel offers to you two signs. One of a pregnant Elizabeth, and the other one of a pregnant Mary, who will soon give birth to the second person of the Trinity. Both absolutely, incredibly miraculous. Both God intervening in time and space to prove that He can To show that God keeps His Word and that God is faithful. And so Mary responds in verse 38 in words that I find absolutely incredible by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the craziest situation, she says, I serve the Lord. Let it be as you have said. And friends, I don't know what kind of callings God has put on your life. And on a day like today, it's easy for me to go, Lord, did you really call me to Fargo? I mean, it was negative 41 wilden chill when I showed up this morning. My face hurt. I did not get, hey, let's make you pregnant. And she, yeah, see, Tyler's with me. Let it be according to your word. And with that obedience, the angel departs her. And you know the rest of the story. She leaves Nazareth and goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant. And if you lean into the story, you kind of get the sense that she's not going to test the Lord. It's not not a litmus test for her that she's going to go, wait, is she really pregnant? Because she really is, and this is really true, then I'll go with it you get the sense that she's actually going in faith, trusting in God, believing in God, to see what he's doing, to see what he is about as a testimony to her. And in verses 46 through 55, you find what is often called the Magnificant. It's a Latin term that's derived from some of the early words, but the idea is it's Mary's song of praise. 
And before we lean into that, let's stop and point out a couple of things. First, the context. Again, realizing that this is composed by an engaged pregnant 13-year-old whose fiancé does not know she's pregnant. And in that culture, based on all worldly traditions, there's about a 0% chance that Joseph will follow through on his engagement. Yet she steps out in complete confidence in the Lord. And secondly, I want to point out, and this will become abundantly clear, even more so if you study this text thoroughly, that her song here bears strong similarities to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, when Hannah finds out she's pregnant, which says one thing that we can't miss. Mary knew her Bible. In fact, Mary knew her Old Testament well. And in fact, she knew it so well that nearly every word she is going to put before you in the next 10 verses are a near quote of an Old Testament passage or an allusion to an Old Testament passage of which there are at least 12, as many as 15, depending on who you lean into. This girl knew her Bible, which is extraordinary, given the fact that she didn't own one. That her opportunity to be acquainted with the Word of God came from going to the synagogues on Saturdays and hearing a guy speak, and yet she had it so thoroughly memorized at 13 that I'm ashamed. She knew God's Word. And that's what prepared her, that's what enabled her to step forward, I think, with such great confidence. And that's what it gives her this spot, having traveled to go visit her cousin to say this upon receiving her, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he's looked down on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed. This girl who was 13, who was a cast off in their society anyway, who was from a small town in Galilee, which suggests she was a cast off anyway, engaged to marry a carpenter, which suggests her family had no means at all whatsoever. God looked down on her, provided for her, and Mary worships God for what he has done. And for blessing her with this calling. This calling that no doubt would have absolutely challenged the next 30 years of her life. Because it wouldn't have taken a lot of people a lot of time to do some math to figure out her wedding date and to know her birth date. That's not just a new phenomenon that people gossip about people. She would have walked through that for 30-some years watching Jesus grow up. Can you imagine as a mom? Now, we thought our firstborn was awesome and our second two were a challenge. Think about this one. Her firstborn was perfect. And she kept having kids who weren't. Mary walked through this with incredible faithfulness, seeing God for who he was, trusting his word, 
and living like it was true. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his name is holy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You even see the gospel put before you in that verse that God would show his mercy, his mercy going to those who don't deserve it, that God provides for those who don't deserve his love, don't deserve his mercy, always going out, always at work, 51. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever, we expect language like this from Paul. We expect language like this from Luke. We do not expect language like this from a 13-year-old uneducated girl in Galilee. But she knew God's Word. And she trusted in God's Word. And she claimed God's promises because she puts out all of God's language Back to God in worshiping Him. Verse 56, And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. That's the verse that you realize the enormity of this. That Mary walked forward in obedience, but clearly there were some difficulties in there because for three months she stayed. Those have been three months, a first trimester stay, if you will. She comes back clearly pregnant when things start to really challenge her. But what you watch from this story, what you learn and glean from the life of Mary, is that she completely trusted the Word of God. That she walked faithfully and obediently in that trust. That she embraced hope. And that what hope was to Mary is that what God says is true is true. And what hope looked like to Mary is that what God said He will do, He will do. She embraced hope in a situation that could have produced thousands of different responses. She believed the angel Gabriel fully in verse 37 when he said, Nothing is impossible with God. So she trusted that when she was pregnant. She trusted that it was the Lord's work. She trusted that He would provide for her, that He had a plan for her. Though this is not what she would choose for herself, she submitted herself to God, trusting Him completely, that He had a plan and that it would work out. She trusted the Lord. And she fleshed it out in hope. That's where you lean into this biblical idea of hope and not a worldly view of hope. For if we look at a worldly view of hope, we might hope something happens. As if the outcome is unsure. That's how hope has become defined in the English language. That I hope that it will snow two feet today. That I hope that the Broncos will beat the Patriots by at least three touchdowns today. That I hope, we can list out our hopes, right? But there's no surety of any of those things. And friends, that's not a biblical view of hope. What hope is in the Scripture 
is that God is who he says he is, and so I have a sure hope. I have a fulfilled hope. I have a hope that will not let me down. I have a hope that will not sell me short. I have a hope that regardless of my situations and circumstances at this moment and on this day, that might seem absolutely crazy, that might seem not what I've ever wanted or asked for, that somehow God will use it for his glory and his word will be true. That's biblical hope. That we'd be fully confident of all of God's promises. That he will never leave me nor forsake me. That he hears every word I speak to him. That if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive me for my sins. That we can trust in all of God's promises, being fully confident of their complete fulfillment. That's biblical hope. That's the hope that this season calls us to embrace. Not the hope of a perfect family gathering or the best gift or the right combinations of things that will I could put my wife's stocking to elicit the response I'm looking for. See, those are all faulty hopes. Hopes that are so easily bought into, but a biblical hope in this season that we call you to embrace is that God's word is true and that God is faithful. And that as you walk through these next couple of weeks, God will fulfill all of his promises, regardless of your situations and circumstances or how hopeless it might seem or feel. God will be faithful and his word is true. I was reminded this week that a couple years ago when we worked through Hebrews 11, it's funny to look back and say a couple years ago preaching Hebrews 11 to think that you know, we're coming around to almost year three for us killer lanes. But a couple years ago when we worked through Hebrews 11, we defined faith as trusting God's word and living like it's true. And I've come back to that definition an awful lot since then. That faith in Jesus Christ calls us to trust God's word and to live like it's true. And that's hope. God gives us his word. It's right and true. And we trust it to its uttermost fulfillment. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We walked through the book of 1 Peter, came back to this as we called our series A Living Hope. This idea, this reality that we have a hope, Peter writes, a living hope, because Jesus, who was born, rose from the dead. Our hope isn't just in his birth, though miraculous it was. And it isn't in his death, though it too was miraculous. Our hope actually resides in his resurrection. That his birth is tied to the cross and it's tied to his resurrection, which tells us anything that's dead can come alive. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Friends, I urge you, I charge you, I encourage you this season to reconsider hope 
not as things you want or expect or desire, but as the reality that God will fulfill everything that He's called, every promise He's put before you, everything that He has promised you, God will fulfill, that our hope is fulfilled in Jesus. So I close this morning with a verse that's been our benediction for all of 2016. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, why? Because that's who our God is. He gives hope. Fill you with all joy in, and peace in believing. Do you see there that the joy and peace comes from believing? The joy and peace don't come from your circumstances. They don't come from your situations. The joy and peace comes from believing, from having hope in Jesus, from trusting in Jesus, not just in who He was, but who He is and how He's fulfilling what He says. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Church, as we walk through this season, as we turn the corner towards Christ's birth, May we be a people who abound in hope, trusting God and all of His promises. That our lives would be marked by it. That people would see a hope in us that doesn't make sense. That we could point them to the cross, to the place where we have hope, where we have found hope. The hope that the world needs. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the obedience of Mary. Father, a a young girl who'd studied your word. A young girl who believed you. Who took your promises. Though she didn't have the Holy Spirit, she took your promises and she clung to them. Father, I pray that you would give us that same tenacity that you'd give us that same obedience that you'd give us that same hope father that our view of hope would be one in which we see you fulfilling all of your promises for all the promises are yes in jesus it says in first corinthians father we would trust you and that we would see your fulfillment in all of our life Father, thank you for giving us a hope that is fulfilled, not a hope that's dreamed for. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.